Good morning. I'm, oh, some of you said good morning. Uh, I'm Kristen Hartman, and this is actually one of the last days I can introduce myself as Kristen Hartman, because next Sunday afternoon, I will be marrying Brian, and I will become Kristen Johnson. So, yeah, after 42 years as a Hartman, it may take all of us a little while to adjust to Johnson, but we will get there together. Uh, And regardless of name or marital status, I'm one of the shepherds here, and it is my pure joy to be a part of this church family. Uh, And what a privilege it is to get to dive into this text together today. If you were here last week, you heard Darren introduce us to 1 Corinthians. And if you're speedy, there are three journals left on that table. Um, But you heard Darren introduce us to 1 Corinthians and some overarching themes we'll be exploring in the coming months. We saw some of the ways this book will be applicable to us. We don't necessarily like all of them when they're relatable issues, maybe like church divisions, but there's a lot in this text for us. And if you missed last week's message, I would encourage you to go on our website, find the sermon archives and listen to that. But if you were here last week, you will hopefully recognize some of the same context that we're going to touch on today that Darren started introducing us to last week. We're going to go back to Acts 18 and ahead to 1 Corinthians 15 that he had us consider because they are so important to our passage today. So if they sound familiar, good. Uh, I was already planning on using them and what a great affirmation of the spirit that he is drawing us to the same places and the same connections in his word. But today we get to some of the heart of what Paul wants to make sure the Corinthians cannot miss. There are plenty of things that they may not see eye to eye on, some of the preferences among them, but there is an absolute essential and unifying element. It holds everything together. What is it? Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Our whole passage today is rooted in this idea that Christ crucified is the center of what Jesus' followers believe. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is anchored in the fact that Jesus died on a cross. Today, that seems like a kind of no big deal statement. Whether we follow Jesus or not, we probably, I would be shocked actually if we haven't, seen crucifixes, whether that's in the form of a necklace or artwork depicting Jesus on the cross. And we've actually become desensitized to it. So we have to stop today and intentionally recognize the reality that crucifixion in the first century Roman Empire was capital punishment. It was for the worst of the worst, to make a point and deter others from doing whatever earned that person on the cross, the death penalty. No one wore cross-shaped jewelry then. It was a gruesome and awful way to die. And we start with it right in the first verse. Look at our first verse today, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The centrality of the cross was ludicrous to those who were not following Jesus. It actually unified Jews and Gentiles, all non-Jews, who did not follow Jesus because to all of them, the idea of a savior, a rescuer, being executed by capital punishment, was too outrageous to even imagine. And yet Paul says that it may have been nonsensical to all of them But to those who believed in Jesus, the cross was the center of God's power on display. The cross is the dividing point between Jesus' followers and everyone else of every other belief system. That was true in first century Rome, and it is true today. No matter what anyone else thinks about 
what, what else anyone thinks about Jesus. He was a good teacher, a moral example, a fraud, a nice guy. None of that matters if they don't grapple with the cross. Our passage continues, verses 19 through 25. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do not get lost in Paul's words here. His point is simple. Christ crucified is the core. It makes no sense by human wisdom because human wisdom is not God's wisdom. Listen to the prophet Isaiah's words in Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is not just a bigger, smarter human. Our tendency is to think of God as like us, just more so, or with greater capacity. This passage in Isaiah and Paul in our letter reminds us that God's wisdom, God's ways, are incomparably more and other from our human wisdom and ways. Here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says the idea of Christ, which means Messiah or Savior, being crucified is utter folly to most people but it is life-changing power to those who believe. Having the one coming to save you die sounds foolish, but that's not the end of the story. Paul goes on to describe two groups in verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. You may have noticed Greeks and Gentiles are interchangeable terms both for Paul and for us. They both represent all people who are not Jews. And here Paul uses these two groups to demonstrate two main idolatries. One is the demand for power. The Jews had historically seen God give miraculous signs, and many expected that of whomever the Messiah would be. Such a Messiah or a Christ would not possibly be able to be put to death on a Roman cross. That does not fit with the conception of an all-powerful Messiah. A crucified Christ does not conform to the way the Jews expected God to act. On the other hand, the Greeks or Gentiles, they demanded a wisdom that made sense to them and fit with the way with their understanding of the world and the way it should work. A crucified Christ does not conform to the way Gentiles expected a God to act. Christ crucified seems weak to those looking for power and illogical to those prioritizing human wisdom. Paul says that what appears to be foolish is actually the ultimate power and wisdom, in contrast to that idolatrous power and wisdom most people were seeking. Look again at verses 22 to 24. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ to the power of God and the wisdom of God. We might think of the definition of a stumbling block block as something that trips people up. And God's unexpected choice of the Christ, the Messiah, being executed as a state criminal, that most definitely tripped people up. But the Greek word for stumbling block, it's also the word from which we derive our English word scandal. Jesus dying on a cross, Christ crucified, did more than trip people up. It was scandalous. It was offensive to the point of stirring up active opposition to it. As Darren talked about last week, Paul visited Corinth and established this church. It's recorded in Acts 18. And when he did, he spent weeks going to the Jewish synagogue and trying to convince Jews and God-fearing Greeks about Jesus. When they opposed and abused him, Paul left the synagogue and went to a Gentile's house and started preaching there. And we're going to come back to that part of the story later. But here in this section of 1 Corinthians, we realize Paul knew exactly what kind of stumbling block or scandal the idea of Christ crucified was to Jews and Gentiles. He had just experienced their reaction to it not very long ago. But Paul says that same Christ crucified to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this is critical That same preaching of Christ crucified can be the power of God and wisdom of God to those who are called. Paul is writing to people in Corinth, and these words are just as true for us. God still calls from the Jews and Gentiles. He has always called, he is calling, and he will always call from all people. And for those whom he calls and who say yes to that call— Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That does not mean that we are powerful or wise according to the world's expectations. Remember, those were the two idolatries. God's power and God's wisdom continue to confound the world. We are not saying yes to Jesus in order to gain power and prestige. If the gospel you heard or the gospel you share is one about being personally fulfilled or having any kind of religious or political or cultural power, or if it's one about success or rights or control, that's a false gospel. The gospel is Christ crucified, humble sacrifice. The good news is that Jesus the Messiah came not with the power or wisdom that the world expected in the first century or expects today but he came and served the poor and lowly. He healed the physically broken and the brokenhearted. He befriended the outcasts and spent time with the societal nobodies. He allowed himself to go to the cross, the ultimate humiliation and the death of a state criminal, though he committed no crime. But he is also a Messiah, a savior who did not stay dead. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins, and then he rose from the dead. If the cross was the end of the story, we would not be here today. There would be no one to worship because we are not following a dead man. Paul makes that clear later in his letter to to the Corinthians. Look ahead to chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, and as Darren reminded us last week, that is not a gendered term. That's brothers and sisters all in the family. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
sorry, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Drop down to verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The gospel of Christ crucified is not only that Jesus willingly died on a Roman cross as a sacrifice for the sins of Jews and Gentiles of all time, but that he also rose bodily from the dead and triumphed over death. He is the all-powerful Messiah the Jews and the world was longing for, but it is a power and wisdom that is greater than what our human minds could invent. We could conceive of a military or political power that forces submission and obedience. We can conceive of wisdom or intelligence that comes up with persuasive and intriguing philosophies. Jesus did not use coercion or fantasy. Jesus displayed the power and wisdom to forgive sins and create right relationship between people and God. He freely offers forgiveness and new life to any who want it. And he paid the full price himself with his death and resurrection. The good news is Jesus. It's not Jesus and anything. It's not Jesus in a particular church. It's not Jesus and good works. It's not Jesus in a political party. It's not Jesus in quiet time every day. It's not Jesus and. It's Jesus. Jesus alone offers salvation, Christ crucified. And if we are sharing any other gospel or believing any other gospel, if we have added anything to or taken anything away from this, we're off base. And not only did God conceive of and carry out this good news of Christ crucified that seems foolish to the world, God also chose us and called us. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God does not call and welcome worthy people. No one earned a place in God's family. As Gordon Fee so wonderfully put it, it's a little long, but I think it's worth it. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Not a single thing that any of us possesses will advantage anyone before the living God. Not brilliance, clout, achievement, money, or prestige. By choosing the lowly Corinthians, God, by loud declaration, has forever ruled out every imaginable human system of gaining divine favor. It is all, trust God completely, or nothing. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Not one of us has an advantage. Not one of us has anything we can offer to make ourselves acceptable to God. 
All of us must accept Jesus for who he is and surrender our lives to him on the basis of what he's done. We bring nothing. He brings everything. Christ crucified is the power of God to save us. We have no grounds to boast. That means we have no grounds to have confidence in ourselves in the presence of God. The wealthy and the destitute stand on equal footing before Jesus. The PhD and the person who never finished school stand on equal footing before Jesus. The homeowner, the renter, and the unhoused stand on equal footing before Jesus. Male and female, single and married, divorced and widowed, Democrat and Republican, American and Russian, young and old, Jew and Gentile, everyone stands on equal footing before Jesus. Nothing that this world or any culture or subculture within it holds up as qualifying makes a difference when we stand before Jesus. Not one of us has any grounds to boast or be self-confident. Our only option for confidence is our faith in Jesus. Do you have that faith? Have you stood at the foot of the cross and acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah? Have you confessed that you cannot deal with your brokenness and sin, all the wrong you've ever done, by your own power? Have you ever said, God, I have nothing to offer, and I recognize that Jesus' offer of forgiveness and new life is everything? Have you said, God, I accept Jesus' sacrifice for my sins, and I surrender to you? It can be as simple as saying, Jesus, I trust you are God. Please forgive me and give me new life. I give up my way. I want to follow you. If you have never done that, I invite you to do that today. And I'm going to give you space right now. And it's going to be awkward, and that's fine. I'm going to stop talking. I want you to consider this invitation. So don't let the awkwardness distract you. Don't worry about the people around you. Think about this one question. Do you trust Jesus is who he said he is and died to redeem your life? Do you trust Jesus is who he said he is and died to redeem your life? There will be more time later in the service to continue considering Jesus and if you're following him. But if you have questions about Jesus, please do not leave here today without talking to someone. Come down later when there's people in front. Go to the prayer room. Talk to somebody with a name badge. Grab the person next to you even if you don't know them. They'll steer you to someone else if they don't have an answer. Okay, But don't leave without considering that. The starting point of following Jesus is saying yes to his invitation to new life. And all of us are invited to follow Jesus. And we can have confidence in our salvation when we acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. We are immediately a part of God's family at that moment, and we are in his kingdom now, and we will continue after our earthly deaths to be part of the fullness of his kingdom that is yet to come. Jesus sanctifies and redeems us. It's his gift to us. It is not something we earn or accomplish ourselves. That was scandalous in Roman times. It's scandalous today. Does the thought of Christ crucified scandalize or offend us? Does it seem foolish? Or is it the pinnacle of God's power and wisdom? 
Those are hard questions. Even for those of us following Jesus, we can still find a crucified Savior to be a hard concept to accept. We wouldn't write the story that way. Thank goodness we are not writing the story. This is God's story, and his wisdom exceeds our own. There are parts of God's plan that admittedly will never fully make sense to us, but we accept them by faith. Christ crucified, the power of God on display on our behalf to accomplish what we never could. Let's look at the last portion of our passage today, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, Paul was no bumbling idiot. He was a highly educated and highly articulate man. In fact, when he came to the Corinthians, he came to them fresh from a visit to Athens. In Acts 17, when Paul was in Athens, he shared the good news of Jesus with what appears to be a really elegant speech. And many see that Acts 17 passage as a powerful example of a culturally relevant apologetic targeted to Paul's audience. And it was, though the response to it seems to be mostly nothing. A few Athenians believe, but the speech didn't convince most who heard it. But right after Paul gives that seemingly lofty or wise speech, the beginning of Acts 18 tells us that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He met Aquila and Priscilla. He started working with them as a tent maker, and he started preaching in the synagogue. Every Sabbath, he was in the synagogue. And it does not record any of his messages for us, so we don't know exactly what he said, but we know the people turned on him. He left the synagogue. He began teaching from a Gentile's house. And that's where the church in Corinth got its start. And he tells us here in 1 Corinthians 2 that all he was preaching was Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was not messing with fancy rhetoric or showmanship. He was sticking to the main point. And look at verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Does that seem odd to you? It did to me until I went back and reread the story of Acts 18, which Darren asked us to do last week. And after he, Paul started preaching Christ crucified at the Gentiles' house next door to the synagogue, eventually the ruler of the synagogue and his entire household believed Jesus to be the Messiah. And then partway through verse 8, it says, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Do not be afraid. Paul was afraid. Otherwise, Jesus would not have needed to give him these words of affirmation and assurance. Even though people were believing his message, Paul was dealing with fear. And I love that Jesus not only says, do not be afraid, but he says, why? For I am with you, and harm will not come to you, and you are not alone. I don't know about you, but those words hit at some of my biggest insecurities. The prospect of being alone can be terrifying. Speaking out when you know people would rather not hear from you, 
can be hard and scary. Trust me, I get it. How amazing would it be to hear from Jesus' lips in his very own voice, do not be afraid. Keep going. Keep using your voice. Because I am with you. You are safe. You are not alone. Paul experienced that. That's what happened in Corinth. That's what Paul is referring to when he writes roughly three years later and says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 to 5, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God did not want the people in Corinth to believe in Paul. God wanted them to believe in Jesus. God wanted them to experience the power of his spirit. God wanted the faith of the Corinthian believers to be entirely founded on Christ crucified. Paul did not roll into Corinth with a slick presentation. He came in and shared the core of his faith. Jesus alone can save. Jesus alone can forgive sin and give new life. Only God's spirit can transform lives. The people of Corinth were not won over by Paul because he was something special. They were not jumping on the bandwagon of some fad leader promising the get-rich-quick scheme or a life free from high taxes and an oppressive government. No, that would have been really appealing to them, but that was not Paul. And we are not anyone special either. And if you ever hear a get-rich-quick scheme or a promise of a life free from high taxes and an oppressive government from this pulpit or any pulpit anywhere, run for the hills. That is not the gospel. The people of Corinth discovered Jesus by seeing and hearing a transformed life that Paul had the privilege of embodying. It was not about Paul. It was about Jesus. It does not say this in the text, but I am convinced that part of what the people saw in Paul's simple message of Christ crucified was also love and joy, peace and patience and kindness, goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. They saw the good fruit of a transformed life that only the Holy Spirit can produce in a person. They saw none of those things that had been descriptors of Paul before, but now they saw them because after he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was a new person. He accepted that forgiveness and new life Jesus offered, and the Spirit produced amazing transformation in Paul. I believe that's what the Corinthians saw and heard when Jesus, when Paul heard Jesus' words, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Paul took those words to heart and he preached Christ crucified. And that's our invitation too. If we have encountered Jesus, if we have accepted his free gift of forgiveness and new life that we can never earn, then we are also invited to speak and show Jesus to the people around us. It will not look the way it did for Paul, thank goodness. Most of us will not be called to go to foreign cities and preach, probably not even to local cities, thank goodness. But all of us are invited to live as ambassadors to the people right around us, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces or schools, to the parents on our kids' sports teams, to our medical teams while we undergo treatment, to whomever God has put in your path to encounter. We get to share the good news 
of Christ crucified. We get to experience the Spirit transforming our lives and producing the good fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in us. Those are the qualities that draw people to Jesus. Not fancy speech or worldly wisdom. Not spin. Not all the answers. Christ crucified. Listen to the last portion of today's passage again, but this time from the message paraphrase. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. You'll remember, friends, that when I first came to you to let you in on God's sheer genius, I didn't try to impress you with polished speeches and the latest philosophy. I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First Jesus and who he is. Then Jesus and what he did. Jesus crucified. I was unsure of how to go about this and felt totally inadequate. I was scared to death if you want the truth of it. And so nothing I said could have impressed you or anyone else. But the message came through anyway. God's spirit and God's power did it. Which made it clear that your life of faith is a response to God's power not to some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or anyone else. God's spirit and God's power will still get the message through, and they'll do it through you if you'll allow it. Your life of faith is a response to God's power, so you do not have to engage in fancy mental or emotional footwork to share that good news with others. Do you know what people in your life want to hear? They want to hear why Jesus is good news to you. Why do you follow Jesus? Don't worry about trying to convince them to follow Jesus. Tell them how Jesus has changed your life. Tell them your story and let them see God's power through you. Remember, Paul says in verse 5 that the purpose of his words about Christ crucified is so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power that forgives our sins and allows us to be in God's family. That's the power of the Spirit in us that transforms us more and more into the likeness of Jesus as the Spirit produces good fruit in us. I don't know about you, but I'm in. That's the Jesus I follow. He is the non-negotiable who unifies us. You and I might not agree on a lot of things inside and outside the church. That's fine. But if you follow Jesus and I follow Jesus, we are standing shoulder to shoulder on the level ground at the foot of the cross. There is nothing to become arrogant about or divided over because the essential is who Jesus is and what Jesus did. If that unifies us, we can humbly set aside everything else that could ever divide us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for loving us enough to send Jesus to die for us. Thank you for calling us and extending an invitation to us to follow Jesus and receive new life. We are unworthy, but we are so grateful. God, will you not let a single person leave this room without answering the questions, do I believe in Jesus? Have I put my faith in him? Unify us around the centrality of Jesus and loose our fingers of the preferences we cling to that divide us. Clear out any bad fruit we are producing and empower the Spirit to produce good fruit in us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.